Are you a paralegal or a legal assistant? Then we've got a platform for you. Share knowledge and get insider industry secrets. Join for free now at injuryparalegal.com. So what the heck is the difference between a physical therapist and a chiropractor? They both treat backs, right? Well, there's more of that story. How do primary care physicians fail their patients time and time again when they've been in motor vehicle collisions? What are some of the nonsense tactics that claims adjusters use to try to devalue your client's case and dehumanize your client? On this episode, you're going to boost your knowledge because I want you to capture the true value of your firm's cases. We're here today with Dr. Michael Pasternak. Let's get it started. Are you ready to learn what you don't know about the injury legal space? Well, you're in the right place. This is the Injury Paralegal Podcast, broadcasting from the Correll Law Firm in Winchester, Virginia. I'm your host, Bo Correll. The Injury Paralegal Podcast is excited today to introduce a certain someone that is a practitioner of the healing arts. But He's not just anyone, he's a top tier educator and chiropractor and has been helping patients longer than many of us have even been alive. As an educator, he does an amazing job of breaking down concepts related to the spine to attorneys and when in trial to judges and juries. And as a chiropractor, reduces neck and back issues down to an exact science and restores patient lives. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Michael Pasternak to the Injury Paralegal Podcast. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Glad you're able to uh, join us today. Um, I want to just jump right in it. Uh, Awesome. Tell us a little bit about your your background, if you can. Uh, You know, you've been practicing quite a while. Uh, Where that journey started for you, why you decided to be a chiropractor. And just give us a little bit of background. So I've been practicing that uh, for a little while. Like you said, that's a delicate way of saying I'm just about to hit 30 years of in practice, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, I grew up in New York on Long Island, in case, uh, in case you can't tell from the accent. Um, I always thought I, I knew I was going to be some type of doctor and attorney just because I grew up in New York and... I was brainwashed from as a kid, my parents just said, you're going to be an accountant, an attorney, or, you know, a doctor. And so I just always assumed I was going to be a doctor. Uh, I was younger, like 18, and I was doing some construction work, helping um, a guy that built decks. Uh, So I was helping, I was basically a laborer, helping to build the decks, but I started getting a lot of lower back and sciatic pain. Uh, I went to my family doctor and, um, you know, they weren't able to really do much for me. Uh, they eventually had sent me like to an orthopedic surgeon. There wasn't anything they could do. And um, even though there was a chiropractor, like on every corner, I never even really considered that. But I guess out of desperation, I decided to go see a chiropractor. And, you know, I didn't really understand what they did at that point, you know, but um, I know that my pain got better and my quality of my life got better. And it got me starting to think like, you know, well, that's still a doctor. Maybe that's what I should do. And so I got real excited about it and decided to become a chiropractor and help others. Now, what did your practice look like when you first started? So, you know, I was a solo practitioner and, uh, you know, the majority of chiropractors do tend to be solo practitioners. Um, but, you know, so I, I was in practice. I was helping a, a lot of folks, you know, um, Saw people with, you know, cash patients, uh, patients that had insurance coverage, which has gone through a lot of changes over the last 30 years. And of course, I saw some folks that were injured in car accidents. Um, I've always sort of enjoyed helping patients that were injured. There's nothing more rewarding than being able to help someone. But I feel like when it comes to auto injuries, um, the medical community as a whole uh, really isn't helping these folks to the degree that I would have liked to have seen. So I've always been very passionate about 
helping, you know, the folks involved in auto injuries. But over the years, especially the last three years where I've been doing intensive um, studying and research um, and continuing education in that field, I've just grown more and more specialized to that's, you know, really my primary focus is helping those that have been injured primarily in, in auto accidents. Now, is that the majority of your practice right now? I don't know that I'd say it's a majority, although it's certainly much larger percent than it ever was. Um, you know, we're working on getting it to be a majority, but I'd say it's probably about uh, a, a decent percentage right now for sure. Uh, one of the things I wanted to discuss is because you brought up the medical community and how they treat motor vehicle collisions. And we're going to get into that in a second. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about is from people on the outside looking in, they might wonder what is the difference between what a primary care physician might do as opposed to a chiropractor or a physical therapist as opposed to a chiropractor. Can you please explain this to our listeners? Absolutely. Those are really, I'm going to handle each of those sort of separate. Um, you know, so um, as a chiropractor, I work on the, the spine, um, you know, and we work on restoring the normal motion and function to the spine and eliminating or reducing nerve irritation so that the body can function optimally again. So it's very hands-on, very holistic. Um, we'll work, uh, we're looking at the, the biomechanics of the spine. Um, if we compare that, say, to like a, 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 your primary care physician, your family doctor, your GP, um, they're very educated, of course. But when they go to school, they spend their time learning about um, the things that they're going to see in practice, which is they spend most of their day dealing with internal conditions, things like uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. And that's, you know, where probably 98% of their day is spent. And so obviously that's where 98% of their schooling is spent learning about that and medications and interactions um, with that. And, and so um, they have a little bit of a different focus where uh, how they look at uh, health and, and wellness. And so when a uh, someone who's injured in a car accident shows up in, let's say, the medical doctor's, the front, their primary care doctor, uh, you know, office, they're often more of a nuisance almost to that uh, family practitioner because that's not where they spend most of their time. In fact, you know, there's been numerous studies as they test graduates uh, from, uh, from chiropractic school, graduates from medical school, um, the, uh, it's over an 80% fail rate by family doctors when they graduate medical school in regards to their knowledge of the spine. They just don't get a lot of training with the spine because that's not what they're going to be dealing with. And so um, what that does is it makes a big difference in the type of care that a patient gets depending upon who they go to see. I'll come back and talk about that more in just a minute, um, but I wanted to keep the answer as short as I could to the question you asked me. And then after I do that, I'll come back and we can always expand more upon that and, and some of the differences. Um, so that would be, I guess, the approach is if someone is involved in a car accident and they see their family doctor, the family doctor generally is going to you know, question them about their aches and pains. And then they're going to prescribe some type of medication because that's how they deal with the issues. Um, as a chiropractor, we look at it. We want to try and get to the underlying cause of what's causing their aches and pains, the structural and biomechanical properties, um, why the spine isn't working properly, and try and fix that as compared to maybe trying to mask it with a, a medication or something like that. So that's really, I guess, the, the big difference, right? I, I know they're definitely interested in, you know, the difference between a physical therapist and a chiropractor because in, in some respects and people that, that are not educated, they just seem like both professions treat the spine. So if you can kind of explain the differences and similarities, that'd be awesome. I think that's great. And I think you're right. I think there's a lot of people think that the two are maybe interchangeable, like, Oh, you know, my, my family doctor referred me to the chiropractor. I could just go to the physical therapist or right around the corner from me or, um, 
they don't understand that there's differences between the two, sort of like there's a difference between if you need spine surgery, going to an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon, right? There's significant differences. A physical therapist is going to work more towards strengthening uh, muscles and ligaments. They do a great job after someone's had surgery in, in strengthening that. Um, the issue comes in that when someone's in a car accident, often there's damage to maybe the ligaments, the muscles, and all the discs, and there's biomechanical failure, meaning that the individual joints aren't functioning properly. If that person gets physical therapy at that point when things aren't working properly, then you're strengthening the muscles and ligaments in the wrong position and where it's not functioning properly. Um, and that's really the last thing you want. It's like if you have a tree that's growing crooked and you're trying to strengthen it in that position, that doesn't make sense. You want to try and straighten it up first and then strengthen that. Can you give me, so, an, exa can you give me an example of that in practice? Like, can you name a particular type of common auto injury and how strengthening uh, a ligament or muscle might be a bad idea? Someone gets involved in what's called like a whiplash type of injury or a fancy word would be like a flexion extension type of, of injury. Um, and flexion, well, what you're doing is for our podcast listeners, you're bending forward. You're bending your head yeah. forward. So your chin to your chest, that would be flexion. And then the opposite happens super quickly where you're bending your head backwards. So I'll go to the side. So flexion, bend your head forwards extension you're bending your head backwards mm -hmm. but often the ligaments will get damaged and the discs often get damaged uh, a disc herniation so if you have a disc herniation and then you go to physical therapy and they work on strengthening all the muscles but that whole uh that whole biomechanical unit of the individual vertebra of the spine with the disc in between and the spinal cord and the nerves, mm -hmm. if that's not moving properly, but you strengthen the muscles, then you're strengthening those muscles to hold everything in the wrong place and not move properly, mm. which then leads to premature wearing out and continued problems down the road. So what's different about a chiropractor is we'll start to, after we diagnose the, the problem and figure out how to properly manage it, we're going to start doing specific treatments. Like I'll talk about my office. Um, we'll start with some gentle spinal adjustments to help get things aligned better. We use deep tissue massage that's targeted to the specific areas that have that are tight and have scar tissue building up to help break up that scar tissue microscopically to get it moving better. Uh, we use a laser in the office to help promote healing from the inside out. We'll use electric muscle stimulation to help relax the muscles. We'll use intersegmental traction to help get some uh, fluids pumping to get some nutrition to the discs. And then we'll start patients on in-office supervised rehab to help strengthen everything. But we don't do that until we've gotten things biomechanically and structurally moving better and functioning better. So there's certainly a place for physical therapy, but I think it's more after we get the problem taken care of better. That's well said. Let think of it like this. If you were having chest pain, um, and you were having a heart attack, the time to change your diet isn't right then. You need to go into the hospital, have the surgery to save your life, and then you change your diet afterwards. Mm -hmm. And that's, I didn't mean to interrupt, that's no, sort of like the same principle. Well, let me ask you this. You, you raised an interesting point about how primary care physicians, family practitioners handle the motor vehicle accident victim. Uh, let's talk about that for a second. Do you think they fail their patients? In regards to the motor vehicle accidents? Right. Yeah, and, I and, do. And how, how do they do it wrong? Other than the inactive care prescribing, you know, how do they do it wrong? And how can, how can the profession look towards educating physicians more to recognize these type of injuries unique to auto accidents? Um, so I think one of the key things is the literature is quite clear that the sooner someone gets the proper care, the better result they're going to get, right? It's no common sense. And when you delay treatment, you have more problems. 
just like we were talking about a second ago, if you're having a heart attack and you delay treatment, tissues are going to die and the person may die. So, you know, you want to get that treated as soon as possible, right? Same thing with the stroke, if you catch it early enough. And so when you have these auto injuries, there's different phases of healing, but the sooner someone gets the appropriate care, when I say appropriate care, I'm not talking about masking it with drugs and, and, and medicines. I'm talking about looking at the actual biomechanical issues of how the spine is working or not working and, and working to fix those. The sooner you get those taken care of, the better long-term uh, outcomes a person's going to have. And that's important. You know, I have a, uh, there's numerous, numerous studies over the last 30 years that actually follow patients to see how they do after uh, car accidents. And over 47% of those patients, even 30 years later, still have, and here's the key word, significant, meaning that they still have to go to their doctor on a regular basis. Wow. They're still having significant aches and pains, even 30 years after the car accident. And so it's so important that these people get diagnosed and managed properly and they get early care. Instead of just trying to manage it from a symptoms base, well, you have headaches, so I'm going to give you pain. You have to look at what's happened inside the biomechanical issues. Well, okay, they're having a headache, but oh my gosh, I can't bend their head backwards. They've lost 80% of the motion or, you know, they, they have compression of the nerve. You need to look at what's actually dig a little deeper instead of trying to mask the symptom, but do a, a thorough biomechanical analysis. Um, it's possible they could do it. They just haven't been trained with that. But if one really wanted to serve these, uh, this population of injured folks better, they should either one, get the training to do that and they can do it themselves, or two, which is probably much more reasonable, send it to someone that does have that training that can do that um, so that they can get the, the proper care. And it should be joint care. I'm not saying that they may not need medicine and that the chiropractor and the family doctor shouldn't be working together. Absolutely, they should. And that's what all the research shows. That's what the patients say that they want. And when I work with, you know, family doctors, I call them up and I let them know and they appreciate that. And I send them reports, you know, it, it's for good patient care, better patient outcomes, and it makes everyone happy. So there needs to be more interprofessional communication and collaboration, and it needs to be biomechanically assessed as soon as possible. That would go a long way. Dr. Pasternak, we're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, I want to go into detail about how if there's gaps in care in your client's medical treatment, how that can really hurt a case and hurt your client. Now, you mentioned that things can heal wrong if they don't get that sort of active care that a chiropractor can furnish. Can you give me an example? Like in a, in a typical uh, collision case, if someone doesn't seek care uh, the right way or a physician doesn't know to send a, uh, a case like this to a specialist, what could go wrong and what does go wrong? Um, well, I'll give you this simple example, not of the spine first, and then I'll answer that more in depth. Just pretend like you're, you're backing out of your driveway and you've got like a, a young tree, a treeling. I don't know what you would call it, right? Um, you know, you planted a tree there the year before and you accidentally back your car into it a little bit. Um, you don't uproot it 100%, but now it's tilted instead of being straight. Well, if you leave that alone, it's going to grow tilted. And um, we, if you just drive, I'm sure you've seen trees that are at a tilt or branches that are totally at a 90 degree angle. You're like, what the heck? Um, that's an example because something's injured and it's not taken care of. It heals like that. So we don't want that to happen with your spine. We don't want your spine to heal crooked. Or if let's say that you have, I'm trying to keep it simple, but you have like in your neck, you have seven vertebras or, or bones. And then in your mid back or what's really your thoracic spine, you have 12 uh, vertebra or bones. But the point is, so you have a bunch of the, these bones and you have the discs in between that is shock absorbers, but each of those bones should move, right? That's what lets you 
bend your head forward, like what we were talking about, flexing, turn your head. It's that movement. But if you get injured and two of those segments aren't working properly, what happens is the ones above and below try and work more to take up the slack, almost common sense. If two people are carrying a heavy object and one person starts to not do their share, either the whole thing falls to the ground or the other person does more work to make up for it. And that's what happens with the body is your body tries to move more above and below to make up for those segments that aren't working properly. But the longer those segments stay working not properly, that's what arthritis sets in. It wears out and it causes a lot of problems for down the road. And that's why it's so important to get these injuries properly assessed and taken care of, not just masking it uh, with medicine. But like I said, I work often very often with the other providers, especially pain management and injections. And it works great together when they're doing their part to help calm the pain down, but we're doing our part or I'm doing my part biomechanically to get things moving better. So Dr. Pasternak, what are the different types of common auto injuries? So, you know, you have what what's called your, your neck whiplash, right? Your cervical flexion extension injuries. Um, you can also have it a little bit lower down in the thoracic spine. Uh, same thing, like a flexion extension type of injury. And obviously you can have it with your lower back, which is called your lumbar spine. So like a lumbar flexion extension whiplash type of injury. Um, those would be the most common. I mean, you do see broken bones, of course, sometimes and you know, you do see fatalities, but um, those would be the most common in your shoulder. A little too late to treat those. Yeah. Um, um, well, one of the, the common types of auto injuries that come up are sprains and strains. Yeah. And they seem to use it interchangeably, but they're not interchangeable, are they? Oh, absolutely not. Um, and so a strain has to do with injury to a muscle a sprain has to do with injury to a ligament. Those are two totally different types of tissues. They heal completely different. Um, their prognosis would be completely different, even their treatment. And so um, unfortunately, 99.9% .9 of the medical profession uses those terms um, interchangeably. And that's not correct. Even worse is there's actually three grades of sprain and strain almost nobody ever talks about that, but I mean, that's so significant. And I can't stress that enough. A grade three strain, for instance, would be a complete tearing of the muscle where a grade one strain would be, you just overstretched it. Well, if you just overstretched your muscle, obviously the treatment is going to be completely different than if you completely tore that muscle. So you need to know which tissue you're talking about. And this is good. Again, this isn't so much something that a paralegal would know, but someone that's really educated in biomechanics and the spine and, and has done further studying in this, they need to be known. This is the type of uh, doctor that you want that's handling your patients because it, um, it helps to know what the problem is. But so you need to know what tissue is it? A, is it the muscle? Is it the ligament? Is it the nerve? Is it the disc? Is it the spinal cord? So you need to know what tissue and how severe grade one, grade two, grade three. How does care differ between a strain and a sprain or how should it differ? So, so what should paralegals and legal staff look to to see uh, whether or not a, a professional is doing the right thing, for example? Um, I think it comes more down the the paralegal should just be looking at the diagnoses that they're getting from their medical professionals. I do a decent amount of uh, independent medical exams where it actually is really independent, where I'm actually just looking at it to see what's there is, you know, um, and I see the quality of the work from these other doctors across the country, because I, I don't just do it in Virginia. I've done some for in, in other states where they send the patient to me or just the records. But, you know, I have to say that the quality of the records I get as far as properly diagnosing what tissue it is and the extent of it, it is bad. Um, you know, and it's not just one profession. I've reviewed the notes from physical therapists, uh, even chiropractors, um, orthopedic surgeons, neurosurgeons, uh, surgeons, neurologists, and 
they just all just because they're busy. And again, they don't have time to, to properly diagnose and, and really manage these. They don't delve into those little important points that really aren't little like which tissue is it. And so they just tend to call everything a, a strain. Uh, they may not even call it a sprain when it really is a sprain. And um, it makes a huge problem because, you know, then uh, you have the insurance company uh, or the claims adjuster trying to decide, well, why does this person need care more than four weeks when they have a, a strain injury? And they're probably right. If that was the accurate diagnosis, that probably should have healed by then. But what happens 99% of the time, it's not really just a strain, even though they had a strain, remember a muscle injury, they also, uh, most of the time they've had injury to the ligament, which doesn't heal depending upon what grade it is. And so it's so important to have a, a proper diagnosis so that one, you can get the right care and it makes the legal side's job much easier when they can reasonably talk about really what's injured and the severity of the problem. Now, are these strains or sprains, are they rateable impairments to your knowledge? Well, yeah, well, it depends how severe it is. Right, um, it depends yeah. the grade. Yeah, and so, um, I typically on on all of my uh, auto injury cases and the ones that are referred to me, I follow the guidelines of the American uh, Medical Association. Um, you know, the guide to permanent impairment, the fifth edition is what I use because it's the most commonly accepted throughout the world. There is a sixth edition, but it's not commonly accepted. Um, so the fifth edition is what I use. So it's not my opinion. I follow exact science instead of opinion. And I follow to exact protocols of what the AMA says, here's how you would know if it's impaired. And that's what I do typically on every one of my patients. So there's no guesswork. It's not my opinion versus anyone else. It's here's the opinion of, you know, uh, however, 100,000 medical doctors, a joint knowledge of that form the AMA guides. And, you know, here it is. This is the consensus of the opinion of the people in the field. And so I use scientific uh, validation. Now, have you always done this as a chiropractor? Because it seems like you sort of take your practice to the next level. How did you get to your ability to recognize all these uh, peculiar issues? I mean, do, are chiropractors generally trained this way or did you take additional training? I'd like to say that I knew all this uh, right from the beginning, but that would not be quite uh, telling the truth. Um, you know, I feel like I, I did a, a good job in, in helping the injured people along the way. And I think, you know, that's the, the goal of every doctor, regardless of season or physical therapist, we're all trying our best. I think as a general rule, chiropractors do a, a fabulous job of helping the, the injured. But to answer your question, it's really only been the last three years that I've done extensive research. I'm currently working on a fellowship in spinal biomechanics and trauma. I'm also uh, one of four chiropractors in the state to be trauma qualified, um, which just is a level of expertise, you know, because I've done a, a lot of studying. But I was just, as I said, I've been in practice almost 30 years. And so three years ago, I was looking at things, deciding, you know, where do I want to be, you know? Um, and I just decided that I really wanted to help those folks that were injured in, in car accidents. And I felt like for a number of reasons, but um, that's where I really wanted to focus my attention. And so that's what I've been doing. And so it's really the, the last three years that I've upped my gain significantly. And so um, the knowledge I have now is just, you know, outstanding. In fact, I was on the phone with an orthopedic surgeon probably about eight weeks ago now. Um, and I'd never spoken with him before, but I was referring a patient to him. And so I, I always wanted to call and talk with him. And usually when you get a, 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 I was on the phone with the neurosurgeon, I might've said orthopedic surgeon. I was on the phone with the neurosurgeon. Usually if you get a neurosurgeon or orthopedic uh, surgeon on the phone, you get like 10 seconds, maybe 15 seconds. But we ended up talking for about half an hour. I almost couldn't get him off. He was totally blown away by my knowledge. He's like, oh my God, you know this stuff better than I do. I'm like, yeah, I've spent a, a lot of time these last three years, uh, you know, really working on my uh, understanding and my continuing education. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, you, you, you know quite a bit, especially biomechanics. I want to talk about the common defense myths. 
you know, myths that uh, defense lawyers and claims adjusters for car insurance companies look to to try to devalue the true value of a, a personal injury claim. Yeah, there's plenty of those. Uh, so how do you want to handle this? You want to ask me a yeah, question? Just, uh, well, what are some examples of some of them? Um, I think probably the, the, the biggest one that, you know, we all hear um, is the insurance companies try and say that if, the, you know, there wasn't a lot of damage to the vehicle that the person wasn't injured. Um, and I think you would agree that's probably the biggest thing that you hear. Yeah, I mean, I hear that all the time. You know, it is a common theme and it is either the result of poorly educated claims representatives or they're just plain lying. Um, and I think it's, it's a combination it, between it, the two. It, well, if they're more senior, then I think it's more likely they're trying to be uh, deceptive. But it's, it's highly important that injury firms and injury staff knows uh, this, uh, these, these studies uh, that totally debunks that, you know. There's uh, numerous, 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 and I'll give you some of those in just a moment. Sure. Well, yeah, yeah. Can you discuss that? Uh, first, let me just give you an example, and then I, certainly I'll, I'll talk about that. Um, you know, and I hate to say, you know, we're all sort of brainwashed to think a certain way. So it's almost like common sense that in our mind, we would think, you know, if we don't know the literature and the biomechanics, it almost seems like common sense. Like, oh, yeah, if the car's damaged, the person got damaged. The car's not damaged. The person didn't get damaged. So I could see why people would, would think that, but um, it's really very far from the truth. In fact, you know, if you think about it, like if you go to the grocery store um, and you're buying eggs, something probably all of us have done, you know, I was just doing a, lot, a couple of days ago, but you know, you, you, what's the first thing everyone always does when they're looking to buy eggs, they open up the egg crate and um, they look inside to see if anything's damaged. You know, I'm going to say probably half the time I do that, I see see one that's damaged and half the time I don't. But on the times that um, that I do see damage to one of the eggs, the interesting thing is the carton itself that the eggs are in, it's never damaged. I never see it damaged, right? And so it's really the same issue is that the carton, or if we want to extrapolate, the car has no damage at all. Yet the egg in the middle or the occupant can be damaged. Um, and so it's it's just physics. Um, uh, something that's moving has a certain amount of energy or, or momentum to it. Um, it's sort of like if a cue ball, if you're playing pool or billiards, you hit that white cue ball, when it hits into another ball, it transfers its energy. The cue ball stops moving and that other ball uh, starts moving because that cue ball transferred its energy, its momentum. So when you're in a car that's moving, you have a certain amount of energy or momentum. Um, and then you hit into something, that energy has to go someplace. So it either goes into the vehicle that was struck and that vehicle gets crumpled or damaged. Um, if the vehicle doesn't get damaged, then that energy goes into the occupants that are, that are in the vehicle. And that's why um, that myth is absolutely untrue. It's the exact opposite. A vehicle that's damaged the occupants are more likely to not be injured. But uh, a vehicle that's not damaged or that has minimal damage, it, it's more likely that the occupants are going to be damaged. Um, you have the, you know, I'll just name a couple of them. There's, there's so many. You have uh, um, the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. Um, they said a significant portion of whiplash injuries occur in minimal or, minimal or no damage uh, crashes. The Archives of Orthopedic Surgery, 2001, it found that occupants are damaged more with minimal or no damage to the vehicle than when the vehicle was actually totaled. Um, Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehab, um, 1988, whiplash is proven at 2.49 miles per hour and people were having cervical pain and headaches. And that's at 2.49 miles per hour. I mean, the list goes on and on. There's just so many of them that show that... Um, you know, you could be injured when there's no damage. In fact, the number one sport, I believe, in the country now is as NASCAR, you know, auto racing. They design the cars 
to crash easily. The reason they do that is they know it saves lives because if that car crashes, I mean crumbles, if the car crumbles, then the occupant isn't absorbing as much force and they're more likely to live. And that's why mm -hmm. they do that. So let me tell you about one more. It was in 2005, sure. Croft and Freeman. They published a extensive literature review and it's the, the title of the thing was correlating crash severity with injury risk, injury severity, and long-term symptoms in low-velocity motor vehicle collisions. And what they concluded was property damage is neither a valid predictor of acute injury risk nor a symptom duration. They also said mist, um, and mist is minor impact soft tissue, uh, protocol does not appear to be valid. That's one of the things I'm going to encourage our listeners to, to take into consideration, not just these studies, but a practice tip. And that practice tip is if you have a client that is injured and they go through the proper treatment, there's no gaps in care, and they still have these issues and there's not bodily damage to the vehicle, I would cite to these studies to go ahead and block that sort of of false argument from the insurance companies. You know, uh, it's true that, that when there's no bodily damage to the vehicle, that uh, impact can be absorbed by the occupant. Now, you know, when you get to really, really high speed and the car crumples, you know, and it's a really, really bad accident, of course people are going to be injured. Uh, but uh, that's something to keep in mind. The same works for uh, football players. It's like arguing that there cannot be brain damage because the football helmet isn't cracked. Well, we know that's not true over the course of several years of people con uh, continually receiving trauma to their head from the sport. Look, uh, you know, from a, from a vantage point of a plaintiff's attorney, you got to keep in mind, you got to, staff needs to remember to put these sort of studies in their demand letters, demand packages and be on the lookout because sometimes I, I do know many times, at least in my case, case I negotiate with the claims adjuster uh, from the insurance company, but in some firms, the paralegal does it either way. We want you to be armed with knowledge when it comes to be able to refuting these types of false arguments. What are some additional false arguments from the uh, defense side? Um. You know, they, they try and argue that um, because someone had some degenerative changes or arthritis or degeneration in their, their neck that was present on the x-ray, that, you know, they're not responsible in any way. All this was pre-existing, all the, these aches and pains. Mm -hmm. All the time. They always say it. You're, you're absolutely right, doctor. It is left and right. Well, they, they had degenerative uh, disc disease, uh, you know, five years ago. Um, but, you know, when there is trauma, when there is a collision and it's noticeable, you know, that is causation when they have a concurrent pain, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So they, um, I hear that all the time and I have attorneys ask me to discuss that all the time. And I know that you're obviously well aware, but, um, Again, it's actually the exact opposite. When someone has degenerative changes, let's say in their, and we'll just say we're talking about the neck and their cervical spine, and then they get in a car accident, because those degenerative changes are present, um, what that means is those tissues are weaker and they're more likely to be injured. So you get injured more severe with less force. Again, uh, by the way, I liked your example with the, um, with the football and the helmet. But think of a rubber band. If you have an old brittle rubber band and you stretch it, you already know what's more likely to happen because it's old and brittle. It doesn't have the tensile, which is a fancy word of saying, the ability to stretch and come back to its normal position. Where a brand new rubber band, you stretch it and it's gonna come right back. Its tensile properties are still good. When you have um, degenerative tissues in the spine, it loses its ability to stretch properly, its tensile strength, uh, properties. And so it gets injured very easily um, and you know with much less force. So yeah, the, the insurance company got that exactly backwards. That's an easy one to dispute, I think. Well, 
getting back to a prior topic, it seems like you, you certainly know how to debunk defense myths if the facts are present to debunk those. Um, you know, this all comes down to staff. It all comes down to the firm. It comes down to the attorney, all advocates for that client. We need to take a real brief commercial break. And when we come back, I want to discuss what kind of questions that injury firm staff should be asking during the screening process of prospective clients or just following up with their current clients. What should injury law firm staff be on the lookout for when it comes to screening cases? Uh, you know, what kind of uh, questions should they ask someone to determine if something might be really severe for a, a potential client? I'm so glad you asked that. I had like two questions that I was hoping that we were going to get to, and that was one of them. So and that was the first one. So we're thinking on the same lines. You know, obviously you need to ask your questions from a legal point of view, right, to see if there's any liability. But then what now we're talking about, okay, so what things should from like a medical point of view to help see if maybe they've been injured or not? You know, I think what stands out obviously is, is headaches, neck pain, mid back pain, uh, lower back pain, maybe shoulder pain, even like could be wrist or knee if they bang that into the, the car during the impact. But you want to look for things like they may not call it pain always, but it may be, they may be saying, well, my neck's tight or stiff, right? Or they may be having muscle spasms or also things like tingling into the hands or the feet. Um, so, and you want to, of course, you always want to ask, you know, well, even if it's headaches, you know, did you have the headaches before the accident, right? If they didn't have the headaches before the accident, well, that's easy. But if someone says, well, yeah, I had headaches, you know, I think that you would want to dig. I know I like to, from a medical point of view, and I'm sure from a legal point of view, you just want to dig a little further. So tell me about the headaches before the accident. How severe were they? Where were they? Go ahead and describe them. How often did you get them to see if there's any change after the accidents? If before that accident, they had headaches once a week and it was graded at a two on a scale of zero to 10. And then after the accident, now it's a constant headache and it's an eight. Well, then there's clearly an aggravation of a pre-existing condition, um, you know, so you want to look to see, you know, for those types of things. Well, let me ask you this. How critical is it to ask if a potential client, when they walk into your office, if there is any numbness or tingling in your hands, your fingers, you know, your arms, your feet, your legs, how critical is it? And if it is present, what could it mean? I think, I think it's very critical. And really, I would add to that, like the spasm or the, or the tightness, because that's probably the things I hear the most often. You ask them if they have pain or on the questionnaire, they mark down they don't have pain. But then when I dig a little further, well, they have tightness, they have spasm, they can't turn their head, they have numbness and tingling. Those are all signs that, you know, there could be, especially the numbness or tingling, is usually a, a neurologic finding that maybe some, there's some injury to the to the nerves or the neurological structures on the inside. Uh, oftentimes, you know, we follow that up with testing and it may even lead to um, an MRI or something else so that we can see exactly what's going on with that. But I'd say those are critical. Um, and just because someone, what I call pain, someone else may not call pain, right? They may call it, like you said, numbness, tingling, spasm. So you want to word it a bunch of different ways to see really what things are they experiencing. And uh, when you have that sort of uh, prospective client in the office or an existing client, uh, how do you know they're getting the right care? Is there a certain type of medical professional they should see when they have numbness and tingling or should go to a new one if, you know, they, they keep going to their, their primary care physician and they're still numbness and tingling after two months, you know, who should they be seeing next? Well, so I think if someone's having let's say like the example you just gave that, you know, they're seeing their family doctor and it's three months and they're still having persistent numbness or tingling. Well, you know, my first concern is, 
you know, is this like we already talked about, is this person really being properly managed for their auto injuries? Um, you know, because early care is so important. Most of the time, I, I think if you look at that uh, scenario you're talking about, they probably haven't been sent to a spine specialist that actually manages conditions. So that would be the first thing is that new, usually uh, numbness or tingling that a family doctor, if they refer, is going to probably refer to a neurologist, which they do specialize in that. But we come back to philosophically that, you know, the neurologist, let's say that they find, okay, the person has a radiculopathy, meaning the nerve root as it comes off the spine is getting pinched as it goes down to the arm. Well, they're still going to most likely, unless it, it needs surgery, then they would refer to a neurosurgeon. They're going to prescribe some type of medicine to maybe help calm it down, which is good. And I'm not saying that that shouldn't happen. Of course that should. But again, it gets back to, well, what's causing that Instead of just coming up with the diagnosis, which is the name, let's get to the underlying cause and what can we do from a structural and biomechanical point of view to get that better. So you didn't ask this, but I think that since I'm assuming maybe you did say this, there's probably a lot of paralegals watching this. Um, so and just so I say this, because I'm a chiropractor, you know, if you have people coming in with these soft tissue, these soft tissue types of injuries, uh, the neck pain, the headaches, the tingling, the spasm, the things that like we just listed, you know, you should absolutely be referring to a chiropractor as your first choice, um, only because they're going to work on things structurally to help get this person the, the best result at, from, and they're going to do it quickly so that, um, you know, there's no delay in care. That's really important. For the long term, um, you know, if you have someone that's having pain that you can't explain, right? And you're looking through the doctor's notes and you can't figure out, well, it's been three years. This person's still having pain. What's going on? That's when you should send it to someone that really has uh, credentials in this. Um, someone like myself, right? Someone, you know, there's not very many of us, but someone that knows what they're doing that can actually help figure out, well, why is this person still having it, right? Um, you know, I looked at on one of the IMEs that I did. Um, it was a case out of New Jersey and they'd already, um, they've been to like uh, two or three different neurosurgeons. They've been to pain management. They've been to, to everybody. No one could figure out the problem. Years have gone by. I took all the information that they had. I didn't even get any new information. I used their x-rays. I sent it out and had it digitally analyzed and found out that they had ligament laxity and impairment according to the AMA guides. And so, you know, that helped the attorney settle the case for a full, um, full policy limits just because you had the right person that knew how to look and how to find things. Um, the main thing is, uh, I, I said I was objective when I do my impairment ratings, and that's 100% true. I don't try and cater to anybody. Um, it's either there or it's not. It's backed by science or it's not. And if it's not, I don't try and say that it is. You know, I, I try and be, you know, I follow everything 100%. is really no opinion. It's just this is what it is. Here's what the science says, and that's what it is. So I'm always available to do that. Well, uh, and that's one of the things I want to get across is, you know, when a client hires a firm and the attorney, and they're also hiring the staff uh, that helps this client uh, throughout the course of care, helps get them answers. And that's so, so critical to, I agree. Uh, to, under, to, to understand. Because if you have a client, and by the way, your duty is not just legal, I think. I think you have a moral obligation. When they come to you and they hire you, you are there to also protect them, not just their financial interest, not just to get a great settlement, although that's part of it, uh, but a, a fair settlement too. You know, a lot of times we're just fighting for fair settlements. But, uh, but when you have a client and over the course of several months, this client is not improving and you have a, it could be a primary care physician, you know, the old country doctor, it could be uh, the, you know, the family physician, or it could be another chiropractor, it could be wh whoever, and the person is not improving, and they're continuing to treat, you have to question what's actually going on. And you got to question whether or not uh, this person, this client should have been referred to someone to investigate if there's something more specific that's been going on but you owe it to that client to follow up, 
not just, you know, at least uh, with us as a periodic basis, we're always calling our clients, how's treatment? What are you doing? What are you doing next? What's the next plan? You know, what's the plan to fix you, right? But you have to, when you're following up, you need to, to keep track of if they're improving or not. Because regardless of the moral obligation that you want your client to be better, also, you know, there's a legal obligation too, because if a lot of times the, the law will not recognize if there's, if you have not tried to mitigate the damages. So if you know someone's not caring for someone and they're continue to treat, continue to treat, you know, the insurance company would be in, in their right mind to say, well, we're not going to pay for this because this person, this care was not necessary uh, because this person should have a reasonable position would have referred this person out months ago. Uh, but that's something to keep in mind, try to look out for that. Uh, but just keep in mind that, you know, if a condition is not improving, you know, maybe they should be investigated. Maybe it should be referred out. All right, Dr. Pasternak, anything else you'd like to add? I'd like to just say that that was so important what you just said right there. You know, even though the paralegal or, or the attorney is not a medical doctor and they can't make medical decisions, they're still looking. And frankly, um, you're probably you're, you're managing that case much more than any of the doctors that are involved with it. Um, and so if you see someone not getting better, I, I don't want to repeat everything you said. I agree. I, I don't know how you do that from a uh, paralegal's point of view, but you talk with your attorney about talking with the patient and, you know, and maybe calling the doctor or having the patient see someone else at the same time. But, you know, we all have an obligation. If I, I do a re-exam every four weeks on a patient and if, and I'm looking at it visit by visit, if they're not getting better, I'm, I'm either ordering more tests to see what, okay, what's going on? Why aren't they getting better? Or at the same time, I'm referring them to someone else to, as well. You, you know, I do not keep treating a patient that's not getting better. That's not in my interest. That's not in the patient's interest. That's not good doctoring. I mean, that's, you know, that's bad from so many perspectives. Dr. Pastrick, I want to thank you so much for your knowledge. We held you over a little bit of time, but I want to say, we want to thank you so much for uh, giving us an insight as to being a chiropractor and, and what kind of issues that injury legal staff should be looking to uh, in managing uh, their cases uh, and looking over those medical records. So again, thank you so much for joining us at the Injury Paralegal Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for what you do. Yeah, Have a good day. Take care.